This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Wednesday, January 14th, 2014. I'm Caleb Brown. Are the tactics used by prosecutors too much when they take on corporations? Brandon Garrett is a professor at the University of Virginia School of Law and author of Too Big to Jail, How Prosecutors Compromise with Corporations. He spoke at a Cato event December 3rd. The rise of deferred and non-prosecution agreements. The, the Siemens guilty plea was filed in court. The company has a criminal record, so do three of its subsidiaries. There was a judge there that read the agreement, asked questions about it, and the case was, was concluded. Non-prosecution agreements are never filed in a court. It's a private agreement between the parties. The prosecutors say, we're not going to prosecute you, assuming you pay fines and comply with these terms. Uh, deferred prosecution agreements are filed in court, but what is filed in court is a tolling of the Speedy Trial Act. Basically, we agree to let this case sit on the judge's docket, assuming you pay the fine and comply with the terms. We dismiss the case from the judge's docket. Nothing ever happens. There is no indictment. There is no conviction. Uh, there is no criminal record. What has been really interesting to watch over the last decade is the rise of these agreements. I started tracking them early on in my teaching career, starting in around 2006. At that point, there'd only been a few dozen of these things. I could stack them in a little pile on my desk and read them all. Uh, what we've seen since is that the lion's share of the biggest corporate criminal prosecutions involving public companies have tended to involve these deferred and non-prosecution agreements. Uh, the numbers aren't that great. Many, many dozens more companies are convicted every year, but those cases tend to be small mom and pop type cases. Uh, minor environmental law violations or billing fraud violations. Uh, the biggest cases involving the public companies, the, re the really important ones that are of public interest, have disproportionately been these deferred and non-prosecution agreements. Here's a chart showing the public companies. And you see how increasingly, starting in 2005, for the, in most years, most of the public companies prosecuted are receiving these deferred and non-prosecution agreements as opposed to plea agreements where there's a, a conviction. Why the change? Well, one part of the change was a new approach announced in 2003 by the Department of Justice. And there's some genesis of this in an earlier memo written by Eric Holder when he was Deputy Attorney General. Um, some of the change had to do with the fallout of the Arthur Anderson prosecution, which I describe in some detail in, in my book. It's a totally fascinating case and a fascinating criminal trial. Uh, these nine factors are assigned no particular weight, but prosecutors are basically told you need to think about it when you're prosecuting a company. Is it really a good idea to, to pursue a conviction? Is it enough to just prosecute the employees? How serious was the wrongdoing? Did it reach the highest levels? And is this company reporting it to you? Corporate crime may, may never come to anyone's attention unless someone reports it. How good is the company's compliance? Is it promising to fix its compliance? And would a conviction or a prosecution destroy the company? Would that put innocent employees out of work? Would it affect innocent uh, shareholders? Would a civil fine be enough? So a whole family of these factors to be weighed in no particular order or weight. Uh, the sentencing guidelines emphasize some similar things, and they've been around longer. They emphasize compliance and whether higher-ups tolerated the conduct. And then there's a question, well, do prosecutors follow those factors? To what degree do they honor those factors or care about them? It, you would think that compliance would be really important in these prosecution agreements, given how that's, you know, a whole set of those factors revolve around remedies and compliance. Most of the agreements that I read sort of say general stuff about uh, 
due diligence and adopt some effective compliance, adopt some best practices. Well, is the company supposed to actually review its compliance and do audits? You would think if the prosecutors really cared about that, that it would be standard for such things to be required. Not so much. There are you know, a minority of agreements, a small minority, where prosecutors say, we want you to actually be pay attention to risks, audit the compliance, be sure it's actually working. That's what you'd, you'd, you'd hope that companies that actually have very good, carefully audited compliance would receive special credit for that. It's not clear that's happening. And when you look at the terms of these agreements, these are just the deferred and non-prosecution agreements. Most of the agreements do involve compliance requirements. But there is a surprising number in that second sort of more pink column where no compliance reforms are imposed by prosecutors at all. And what, what is going on in those cases? It's an even smaller number in black there in which auditing compliance is required. So please do some compliance, but we don't want you to check on it or see how it's working. Uh, sometimes the company is sort of given credit for compliance that was already adopted or regulators were, were supervising compliance. Some smaller number of these agreements also ask, ask that the governance of the company be changed. Hire a chief compliance officer. Uh, that will, will report to the board, hire new compliance positions, hire other new employees to sort of shape up compliance, sometimes with real detail, for the most part, not so much. And then in a minority of these cases, corporate monitors are imposed, independent figures who are supposed to supervise all this compliance. Let's talk about those monitors. In the Siemens case, there are two monitors. They wanted to have a monitor that was familiar with German corporate law and German finance, and they, they hired a German, fi a German finance minister, an extremely prominent person, uh, Dr. Theo Weigel. Uh, Joe Warren uh, from Gibson Dunn here in Washington, D.C., was the, the American counterpart. Uh, both of the monitors uh, talked to me when I was working on this book, and it was, it was really fascinating for me to hear about their work. Uh, frankly, we don't typically hear anything about what monitors are doing or what is happening during the implementation of a corporate prosecution agreement. Uh, the Siemens company, though, is maybe the exception to that typical rule. They're quite proud of the work that the monitors did and feel like it did very good things for their company. And the monitors described it being an extremely labor-intensive and enjoyable uh, many years that they were doing this work. In fact, that uh, Dr. Weigel was telling me how Siemens never failed to approve any of his recommendations, of which there were many initially. They gave him kind of the office where you first walk into the headquarters just to show how important the monitor was. And if you read the translated versions of the CEO's speeches, he will hail the work of the monitor. Thank you so much for all the work that you've been doing to improve Siemens. Most companies don't talk that way about the aftermath of being criminally prosecuted. Um, Maybe there was a metamorphosis at Siemens, and I tried to find a German translation uh, of metamorphosis. Uh, they, they did cashier most of the top leadership of the company. They felt that this global bribery scheme was deeply embarrassing. They wanted to, to basically rebuild the company from the top down. New CEO, all the top positions were replaced. Much of the leadership was replaced. And interestingly, the company is nothing short of a proselytizer on the subject of good business. They are, have been entering integrity packs along with uh, anti-compliance officers in different countries that they do business in. Um, 
And the monitors have described how it's just a totally different company. Doing compliance work is considered to be a prestigious job in the company, a pathway to future promotions, not sort of a, a backwater. Um, if all that is true, then maybe this, this corporate prosecution is a, an enormous success story and prosecutors were right to focus on compliance and not just imposing the biggest fine possible. Uh, it's impossible to know from the outside, but, uh, but it was fascinating for me to get to talk to some people at least who did some work on the inside. Then the question is, well, you know, so the company has changed and the company has paid fines. How about employees? Typically in these deferred and non-prosecution agreements, employees are, are not prosecuted. I, I talk in the book about some of the challenges prosecutors face in this regard, and it's about 35% of the cases where employees are charged. Uh, this is also updated data uh, through, through the, the, this year or through what's happened so far this year. And those are just ind individuals charged. Even fewer end up uh, getting convicted and serving any jail time. In white-collar cases, prosecutors have higher loss rates than they do in maybe more straightforward street crime type cases. Plenty of these cases have resulted in dismissals, acquittals, even deferred prosecution agreements for executives. In this particular case, the Siemens case, then Senator Arlen Specter gave speeches on the floor of Congress saying, this is the biggest foreign bribery case ever. Someone must have paid the bribes. Why isn't anyone being prosecuted? And unfortunately, uh, that wasn't good news for the banker. The banker himself was convicted. He received probation in exchange for all of his cooperation. Um, and perhaps in response to Specter's speeches, U.S. prosecutors then did announce uh, several indictments in this case, eight different indictments in 2011. Uh, didn't sound like there was any realistic possibility that any of those individuals would be extradited to the U.S., and nothing has happened in those cases since, presumably because all of those individuals are in countries that don't have extradition agreements. Uh, perhaps that it's still a punishment that they can't easily travel to countries that do extradite to the U.S. I don't know whether anything will ever happen in those cases. Uh, so what are the lessons from all of this for companies? They're complicated lessons for companies. It depends on which group of prosecutors. It depends on what type of agreement is anticipated. And there's a deeper question. If Do prosecutors prize compliance? If you're a company and want to show that, that you are trying to stay on the right side of the law, what are you, what are you supposed to do? If prosecutors don't necessarily insist on compliance being audited, should you audit it anyway to make sure that it's working so that you can show you have top of the line compliance? But are there metrics for, for doing so? And what incentives are there to collect data on your compliance if you might just uncover more violations which could lead you to uh, be on the receiving end of a, of a corporate prosecution? And then for individuals. As an individual, should you feel like, well, the company will protect me? Individuals don't always get prosecuted in these cases. In fact, they often do not. Maybe the company will have incentives to throw individuals under the bus, but it doesn't happen that often. That that's, wouldn't be the message that prosecutors would want to be sending in these cases. The banker feeling embittered by the fact that he and some middle managers ended up getting prosecuted in Germany, but no one higher up said the 11th commandment is, don't get caught. And uh, I'll end now with, at the place where I, where I end the book, which is, the, this whole practice of corporate prosecutions has been reinvented over the last decade in the US. We are now a global center of these multinational cases. We are prosecuting corporate crime in a way that we haven't before and that other countries around the world had not done before. Other countries are starting to emulate the US approach, including in the UK where they, where they now do deferred prosecution agreements. They passed a bribery act modeled on the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act. 
And there, I just want to highlight that just based on this overview description, there are important questions about whether we are doing this the right way and whether the U.S. approach is worthy of imitation, much less being continued. These cases involve conduct and corporations that are incredibly important to the U.S. economy and to the world economy. I titled the book Too Big to Jail, but companies can't literally be put in jail. I, I do think that corporate prosecutions, though, uh, whether you think that there are too many or too few, are too important to fail. They're too important to be brought in an ad hoc kind of casual way. Brandon Garrett is author of Too Big to Jail, How Prosecutors Compromise with Corporations. You can watch the full event at Cato.org.